Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the Indian Ocean World Podcast. I'm Archishman Choudhury, a postdoctoral researcher at the Indian Ocean World Center, McGill University. After a hiatus of more than a month, we are back with another exciting podcast. So far, our podcasts have presented to you wonderful research on East Africa, the Middle East, South Asia, Island Southeast Asia, the Philippines, and China. Today, for the first time, we are taking you on a trip to Japan. And joining us on this trip is Professor Jakobina Arch, an associate professor at the Whitman College, Washington. Professor Arch initially studied biological sciences and Renaissance studies, earning a master's in biology from the Dalhousie University in 2000. She followed this up with another master's in East Asian studies in 2008 from Harvard University, where she went on to finish her doctorate in history and East Asian languages, which was awarded in 2014. Her research interests include marine environmental history, early modern and modern Japanese history, and history of science and animals, especially whales. Professor Arch has widely published her research on Japan's whaling industry. Her latest book is Bringing Whales Ashore, Oceans and the Environment of Early Modern Japan. It was published from Seattle by the University of Washington Press in 2018. Today, Professor Arch will discuss with us her research on how designs of Japanese coastal ships built during the Tokugawa period revealed specific environmental needs and how oral narratives of castaway Japanese sailors who survived shipwrecks reflect on the interaction between early modern Japan's oceanic and terrestrial environments and the religious world of sailors. Without much further ado, Professor Arch, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Um, and uh, I appreciate being folded into your much broader Indian Ocean world uh, and thinking about connections across major ocean basins is, is very interesting to me. So. Um, I, uh, I focus specifically on Tokugawa Japan, um, and that's in part because this is a time period in Japanese history that is known for being closed off, <laughs> and um, therefore there's a lot less interest, or there has been up until recently, in thinking about how they connect with the ocean. And what I found in my initial research looking at uh, whales and whaling, and now in my current research, which is looking at coastal shipping, um, that there's a lot that we miss if we don't think about how Japan, even in this period when Japanese people are not supposed to be traveling internationally, um, and they're restricted to staying within their own country by their government, um, they're still really connected to the oceans. Um, and so I think that's particularly interesting and it tells us a lot about bigger systems like climate and currents and things that we don't necessarily have control over when we set up national boundaries or um, restrictions on people's travel. So 
my first project I got interested in because I initially was a biologist studying whale behavior, and uh, I decided that I was more interested in the history of how people looked at biology than I was in doing it myself. And uh, I gradually worked my way over to also having an interest in Japan, um, sort of unrelated, just they became related. Uh, and so when I uh, went back to grad school for Japanese history, I got involved in this project looking at um, how people were thinking about whales and, and how that fit into their history. Um, and as I, the more I was working on that project, the more I realized that I was actually looking at uh, human ocean relationship, like whales were a representative of the marine space. But in fact, there was a lot going on with people kind of not just on shore, but also interacting with what's going on, at least in coastal waters. And when you look at whales, they swim throughout the entire Pacific Ocean or actually all oceans. And so even if you think about people only moving a little bit offshore, they're connected into a much bigger set of movements. And, and so that got me thinking about other ways that we could look at this. And so um, in my current project, I'm thinking about uh, coastal sailing so one of the things that happened um, in the Tokugawa period is that the shogunate uh, decided to have specific control over international trade. And so that included not letting Japanese people go offshore, but it also included um, only letting foreign ships come into regulated ports. Uh, and so obviously a lot of people think, well, there's not much going on with um, sort of ocean intersections when you only have Nagasaki and uh, that's it. But in fact, because nobody of the Japanese merchants was going offshore anymore, they focused on a lot of inshore trade. So stuff that was happening within sight of the land, um, you know, coasting between port to port. Um, and a lot of that came out of the government's new system for collecting taxes from all of the domains. So they all had to send rice, which was their tax unit, <laughs> uh, to the, the capital city of Edo, which is now Tokyo, um, or sometimes to the merchant city of Osaka, where it got converted into cash and was paid that way. And so they, the government actually set up shipping routes um, that they knew were safe or as safe as they could be uh, so that they could get their tax rice appropriately. And then merchants, knowing that those routes existed, could use them for other things. And there was just an explosion of shipping traffic over the course of this period. So starting in around the mid 17th. 17th century, mid 1600s, uh, and going through the end of the period in 1868, um, there's just increasing numbers, thousands and thousands of these ships that were built specifically for this coastal trade. They're a new type of construction, and they are meant to interact with the specific space of the waters of the Pacific on one side and the Japan Sea on the other, which are actually very dangerous. <laughs> um, they're, they're very stormy. Um, they're not particularly sheltered. And there's not a lot of really good harbors uh, along the Japanese coast. Uh, and so I got into this initially thinking about shipwrecks uh, and the dangers of being in these coastal waters. Um, and then kind of expanded out to realize that just, just 
lots of different questions involved with um, the sailors and attitudes towards the ocean and where they go and, and how they build their ships and what resources they have and how that intersects with um, ports and uh, land-based stuff that they're creating to ship and, and all these other kinds of things. So um, that's the sort of general process of how I got into this project. Um, and I'm still very much in the middle of it. So I'm sure that more questions are going to come up as I continue doing the research. Um, but I think it, it goes well with um, your focus on thinking about risk and um, climate, because that was one of the big questions of like, how do you end up in these shipwrecks and, and what happens and how do people deal with them? So. Thank you, Professor Arch, uh, for that wonderful introduction. Uh, as I had been reading some of your research the past week, I was intrigued by a few points which you make, specifically about how the ships meant for coastal shipping were designed in order to easily navigate the uh, Sea of Japan, and how this was also uh, connected to contemporary observations of these ships. I mean, for instance, you point out in your research that Western accounts of Japan or contemporary Western accounts of Tokugawa Japan uh, sort of speak disparagingly about these ships, how they're sort of not fitted for oceanic voyages and so on. But what I found really interesting is that even Miji observers spoke uh, sort of disparagingly about these ships. And I really thought this is a very interesting dichotomy. Uh, could you could you please explain what what's what sort of was the reason why Miji observers also found these ships um, sort of not worthwhile to be spoken of? Yeah. So um, to to fill in a little bit on the the Western observers' sort of dismay <laughs> looking at these ships, um, part of this is because Japan was known as a closed country from the West, right? And so. The they're looking for reasons why people aren't traveling overseas, right? So they're looking, when they get there, they see these coastal ships and they think, oh, well, they're, they're not suited for going across the Pacific or, or going long distances out at sea because of particular characteristics. Um, they're very shallow ships. Um, they So therefore they don't have a really deep keel that's gonna make them stable in open ocean. Um, they have an open transom in the back. So uh, if you have big waves coming from the back, then they can just wash down inside the ship, which seems like a really bad idea to people who are used to going across thousands of miles of ocean and their decks aren't watertight. Um, so they can actually pick up the planks and load the ship um, without needing a wharf um, or other kinds of infrastructure. So that's really convenient in places um, like Japan where there's a lot of coastline where it's just shallow, shallow, sandy coastline that they can just run the flat bottom ship up there. It sits on the bottom upright, it's fine and you unload it. Um, but people who are used to these 35 foot deep um, ocean going ships. They're like, what, what's wrong with you? Maybe the government told them they had to build dangerous ships like this and that's why they are restricted from going offshore. Uh, but of course, if you look into it more closely, um, they're not doing it because they're bad at being offshore. They're doing it because these are adaptations which are helpful for being in coastal waters and going in and out of all these shallow ports. Um, the open back is because you actually can 
pivot the rudder up. Um, and so uh, the rudder actually goes down a bit below the bottom of the ship and that helps them a little bit with um, stability when it's out in more open water. But there's a lot of really shallow places along the coast. And so as you get into those places, they can pull the rudder up and get in even closer. And that was more important to them than worrying about the back being open. Um, and it, it still, it, it requires um, some uh, marine engineers have done calculations on this and, and they've looked at it and, and discovered that it requires something like an over two meter wave to come in the back and actually get the ship wet. And that, that's a big wave. So, you know, it's not that they're just always open to the water. Um, so that's one thing that people were seeing and they just didn't understand that this was to be used in a totally different way than the ships they were used to. Um, the other thing is, though, that you mentioned, you know, the Meiji observers in Japan um, were also thinking these were terrible ships and what's happening there. And that was a question that I had, too, because a lot of our information about these ships has come from records um, and observations after the period. So starting in the Meiji period in 1868 and onwards, um, people are looking back and reflecting on this coastal shipping traffic, which has changed dramatically with modernization of the country. And one of the things that was happening with the modernization, a big focus was building up a merchant marine and building up ship construction facilities, but ones that were Western style that were steel hulled ships. Right, and a lot of that was related to building up a navy. Um, so they had wooden ships long past 1868 um, that were still doing this coastal traffic. They're exactly the same kind of ship, but now they're looked at from the perspective of people who went to the Naval College, who went abroad and looked at the construction of ships in other countries, um, and they're just not used to looking at this native construction as something that's adapted to a particular circumstance, they're looking at a model that seems to them to be a universal model of successful shipbuilding, which is these steel-hulled ships, which don't look at all <laughs> like these wooden coastal ships. And so part of that is this new framework of ships, and part of that is also that during the Meiji period, they were trying to distance themselves from their supposedly feudal past, right? So they, they were often looking at traditions and saying, that's something we used to do, but we're better than that now, so that they could be seen as competitive on the global stage. And so the ships kind of got caught up in that um, degrading of old systems in order to prove that they were westernized and modern and competitive. Uh, and that makes it hard to actually think about what were they like and what did people think of them during the time, <laughs> unless we can find uh, records that actually mention that. And um, unlike with other uh, areas of shipping, like looking at European ships or American ones that have captain's logs and um, diaries from some of the sailors and things like that, there wasn't a tradition of keeping written records on board these ships. So there's very few, there's I think I found one merchant record that was like a diary he kept while he was on a ship. <laughs> um, and they there really weren't captain's logs. Uh, most of the sailors didn't have to know how to write. And so we have to figure out other ways to kind of get at what did they think of these ships. Um, they probably didn't think they were as bad as it seems like from these other observers because as I mentioned, there were thousands of them. Um, lots of people use them all the time. Um, they can't possibly have been that terrible if for approximately 200 years, they were the main form of transportation along the Japanese coasts. Thank you, Professor Arch. Um, 
I was also intrigued by one of the points you make. Uh, the Bezaisen, I've got my Japanese, I hope I've got the pronunciation yes. correct. The Bezaisen ships uh, also underwent changes in terms of design. They underwent innovations over this 200 odd years period that you have described. And this, as you quite uh, cogently argue, lessened the duration of voyage, for instance, between uh, uh, cities like Osaka and Edo, which is modern day Tokyo. But at the same time, you also point out that uh, the number, the uh, less number of days that these ships took to travel were also determined by the poor quality of the harbors where they could sort of anchor or hope for a safe anchor. And in this regard, you point out that it was often uh, caused by the river mouths, which were so silt heavy that the ships would not be able to get in. And they would often depend on flat bottomed boats that would carry uh, merchandise from these ships to the riverside warehouses. I mean, I was just wondering, uh, the silt heavy river mouths, they could be caused either by a drought, which sort of dries up the uh, water and uh, the channel dies, or it could also be caused by heavy rainfall. So the river carries a lot of silt and that sort of uh, is deposited at the mouth, which again, obstructs the movement of these ships. Do you also feel that uh, corresponding to uh, these innovations, or corresponding to uh, the less number of days that the Bezaisen would travel, uh, would take to travel uh, between cities in Japan, did they also refer to, in some ways, uh, to um, indirect impact of climatic anomalies like droughts or heavy rainfall? Have you ever wondered about that? Yeah, um, I think it's, it's hard to say whether they were able to kind of pinpoint it to a specific flood, um, either season or ongoing pattern of, you know, decades of flooding versus drought. Um, but definitely, there is a lot of flooding in Japan. Um, river floods are an ongoing problem because it's a very steep country. Uh, and with the monsoon pattern of heavy rain in the summertime, that usually just comes right down the mountainsides. Um, and so there is, that's one of the reasons why the rivers are so silt heavy is that there are fairly strong floodwaters that come through seasonally. And so I think that um, there, there certainly are um, more unusual floods or droughts which might be reflected like if this happened for long enough this would give an impetus to reshape the shipbuilding uh, in ways that if you're just generally dealing with shallow harbors because of the climate patterns being like that all the time um, then you wouldn't necessarily see that same change in the shipbuilding it just would be like that like you, you make the shallow ships to begin with and then it stays that way. Um, so I think it's possible that over the course of this period, there were some climate changes that were um, intersecting with shipbuilding choices. Um, and that is something that uh, I think I will look into to see if there's any useful evidence for that. But I think also you can explain a lot of it from just this being a flood prone kind of country. Um, and I do think that it's also possible that um, some of the shipbuilding changes were related to wanting to be able to 
gets to places faster, right? So it, especially for merchant ships, um, if you're the first ones to get to market with the year's sake, then you are going to get better prices than when the market is flooded with everybody else's stuff coming in. And there were actually races for um, sake ships and also ships carrying cotton um, from Osaka to Edo. And so definitely there was an impetus for constructing ships that were able to do this as fast as possible. Um, and some of that meant not stopping at every little harbor along the way. Um, and so if you didn't have to stop at every little harbor, you might decide to do a slightly bigger ship that can't get into those shallow harbors um, and that is a little sturdier for offshore. So some of that may also have been part of it and not related to the silting. But I think one of the things that looking into ship construction gets you is um, it really points out these different kinds of questions that are useful to ask, right? That um, we're not going to have uh, records that say, you know, the shipbuilder sat down today and, and looked at factors one, two, and three, and then decided that he was going to make these changes, right? That um, especially since the shipbuilders actually didn't leave written records, they um, they drew their lines on a piece of wood, um, and then they would often sand that down to do the next one. <laughs> and so we don't really have, we have a few texts that talk about shipbuilding, but they, they don't get into those kinds of decisions, right? The, the specific, like, how do I adapt to silting of harbors is just seen in the construction rather than them telling us. And so it brings up a lot of questions like this of maybe they do reflect these kinds of climate shifts or maybe they reflect um, considerations about ongoing climate that we should think about um, and that we don't have other records of. This is before people were keeping uh, thermometer based records of, of weather. And so can they tell us something about that? I, I think maybe, but maybe not. It's hard to tell at the stage of, of what I've seen, but it's definitely something that I'm interested in looking at. Thank you, Professor Arch. Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a bit more about the possible uh, broader ramifications of uh, the Bezaisen and the development of coastal shipping in Japan. As I understood from your research, the Bezaisen were also prone to running into bad weather, often leading to serious shipwrecks. And as you have pointed out, this whole network of coastal shipping was uh, connected to the system of taxation involving uh, rice and sake. So I just wondered if uh, in case these ships would run into wrecks, were there any sort of insurance practices that were instituted by, let's say a merchant or a group of merchants or even the shogunate or the samurai that might have covered some of the losses uh, for, for the merchants who ran these ships? Yeah, um, they didn't have insurance companies, um, but they definitely had uh, groups that kind of served the same purpose. Um, so there were these wholesaler groups called Tonya, um, which essentially helped merchants to spread the risk out, right? That they, they helped coordinate um, where goods were going to be shipped. So they didn't all have to rely on a merchant having owning one ship, putting everything in that one ship and then losing that one ship in a bad storm. Um, and so by running through wholesalers, they could um, sort of contract out and spread out the risk across multiple different ships owned by different people. Um, and they could also have a legal 
pressure from these groups if some of the cargo got lost to make the owners of the ship or the captain pay for that loss um, if it seemed to be their fault. So there are lawsuits um, that talk about um, who's to blame <laughs> for a wreck and who owes whom uh, for making up for that. And so that's that's not exactly an insurance payout, but it kind of serves the same purpose. Uh, and often within these, they do make a strong statement about whether or not it was essentially a natural disaster, right? So if this was beyond human control, then it's not the fault of the people on the ship. Um, so if it's a bad enough storm that nobody could have survived it, then okay, you're fine. Um, but that implies that there were cases where um, either the owner of the ship didn't have proper maintenance or the captain made a bad decision and ran into a rock or uh, you know, something that you could blame a person on and then get their money out of, even if you couldn't get the cargo back. Um, there also were, for the government, uh, the shogunate wasn't involved in these um, wholesaling practices, but um, they did have the ability to actually promulgate regulations and um, various other uh, legal demands on how people were supposed to operate ships to reduce risk. So the shipping routes that I mentioned are one of them, like you have to go along these routes that they've marked out and they know where the ports are to stop when bad weather and these kinds of things. Um, you also have to use a ship that's been inspected so that it's seaworthy. Um, so somebody makes sure that there's not a, a rotten section that could fall apart in a heavy storm or um, you know, ropes that are going to break or something like that. Um, they also demanded that ships be younger than seven years old. Uh, merchant ships would be used for a lot longer periods of time. Um, and so there was actually a, a practice of regular refits, I guess you could call it, um, for the way that um, Japanese ships are constructed. Their water tightness comes from planing down the edges of the planks that make up the hull so carefully that they fit together perfectly. And when you put them in the water, they swell up just a little bit and they're watertight. Uh, this is actually, frankly, amazing to me because most ships, um, you make seams and you put a bunch of caulking or other things in there and, and that's how you make them watertight. The Japanese carpenters were really, really skilled um, and they would, they would carefully plane down the edges of the planks. They actually had a saw that would go between both of them that would make the edges fit perfectly together. And over time, that perfect fit wears down. And so they would have a practice of essentially redoing all the edges of the planks um, and that would happen every, well, it, depending on, you know, who owns the ship and how much money they want to put into doing this process, but it would happen at regular intervals. And so there would be one of those that would happen within the time span that a ship could be used to transport government rice. And then after that, the government decided that it just wasn't worth it. The ship was not good enough anymore. But for merchant ships, there's actually, this is probably a really exceptional record, but there is a record of one that first did this 20 years into the ship's existence, and then did it again 20 years later, and then did it again 10 years later. So this ship is getting really old and yet is still usable, right? So there are ways in which um, those kinds of regulations tell us something about how much risk people who own the ships are willing to deal with and what they think is seaworthy. Um, and so that's another way to kind of ensure that you're getting safe travels and the ship's not gonna fall apart along the way. Um, and the other thing that happens is that there are, um, there's an expectation that for the tax rights at least, and I think this probably spills over for the large 
wholesaler groups who have some influence to, to demand a similar kind of thing. Um, local people who are near where a ship has wrecked or is in, in distress offshore are expected to go out and help rescue the sailors and whatever cargo they can. And that they will be expecting a repayment for that, right? So the local villagers know that if this is tax rice, the government officials are going to come in and they're going to repay them for their time lost on their regular work. Um, they're going to repay them for the food that they had to give to the sailors who were staying over in their village. Um, and so there are ways in which there's, it's not a Coast Guard, it's not like an official organization <laughs> to help rescue people, but it's kind of an amateur Coast Guard in that um, the sailors would know that if they could be rescued, um, there was some kind of impetus to do that, right? So that the risk was um, was definitely there and they might lose all the cargo, but they probably um, would at least be saved themselves. Uh, and so there's a, a bunch of different factors like that altogether that make this safe enough for people to do a lot of shipping, even when they also know that there are a lot of bad storms um, and there are relatively frequent shipwrecks. Um, there's actually one thing I just found in the research I was doing this summer, which is really interesting, um, that kind of speaks to how much risk people thought they had of storms and shipwrecks, is there were fraud cases of people who sold off some of the tax rice, which they're not supposed to do because they don't own it, right? It's government owned, but they stopped along the way and they sold the rice. And then they later had a shipwreck where they claimed that that rice was lost. But it turns out they, they discovered by looking at the loading of the ship in a previous port and other interviews with people that the rice had never actually gotten on the ship in the first place or had been sold somewhere along the way. They found it somewhere. Um, and so certainly people thought that a shipwreck was plausible enough in any given trip that they could get rid of some of the cargo and then pretend like it was lost at sea. Um, obviously the two cases that I found that didn't get away with it because it was discovered and that's how it was written down and I know about them. Um, but it does indicate that maybe there was um, some other kind of thing going on there with the risk of smuggling or fraud, as well as the risk of actual shipwrecks. Um, but certainly the, the climate of the area uh, is, is bad enough in general. There are enough strong storms and bad winds for sailing in that people thought that this was worthwhile trying to cheat like this, um, which is just fascinating to me. Like, If it's that bad, if you can expect that there's gonna be frequent wrecks, why would you keep doing this with so many thousands of ships? Um, and yet they, they managed to work it out so that it was, it was worthwhile. Thank you very much. That's fascinating. Um, maybe we just stay on a bit longer with these shipwrecks and I might ask you a few more questions. Uh, I found your um, research on the castaways, uh, survivors, uh, sailors who survived these shipwrecks and returned to Japan to sort of leave behind a narrative of how they survived at sea and what kind of a religious world they inhabited in the sense that whom they pray to and how that's also connected to the terrestrial environment of Japan. Uh, could, you, could you probably um, tell us briefly about how uh, the narratives that of these castaways that you get in the primary literature or even secondary literature sort of changes over these 200 odd years when 
most of these coastal ships were either shipwrecked off the coast of Japan, reaching either China or Korea, or in some cases, as you've pointed out, to Borneo, or were pushed uh, further, to the, uh, further to the east out into the Pacific. So I was just wondering if you could tell us there are, if there are at all, any major changes or how uh, these narratives sort of uh, develop over these 200 years of time. Yeah, um, these, these sources are really fascinating to me. And um, there's, there's hundreds of, or at least over 100 uh, existing shipwreck records, these kyoryuki, these castaway accounts. Um, and so there is a kind of pattern to them. Um, and I think over time, people, people had read earlier ones and, and kind of shaped their stories to fit that kind of narrative. So they were, they were in a sense, a literary construction. Like they're, they're technically the reports of people who came back to Japan and had to speak to government officials uh, about their experiences abroad, because as I mentioned earlier, they weren't supposed to be going abroad, right? And this was an accident, they were in a shipwreck, but they had to prove it was an accident, right? That they weren't trying to go abroad. And they also had to prove when they came back that they weren't now Christian and going to try to convert people, because that was one of the reasons why the government was focused on uh, managing the movement of people in and out of Japan. Um, they had stopped trade with the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, because they had been converting people and there had been um, some concern about the divided loyalty of Christians who owed allegiance to the Pope but also to the Shogun and um, so the um, part of the shipwreck records was just confirming the experience and, and proving that they were safe to come back in the country and so that was not necessarily particularly interesting to anybody else that other than the government. But what was interesting was these accounts of the strange cultures that they ran into, right? So they talk about um, what it's like in these foreign places that no one is allowed to go. And so some of them kind of read like uh, Gulliver's Travels or, or things like that, right? The, the, the bizarre customs of strange people in distant places. And so those were interesting, right, to the general public. And those are mostly what people have researched so far from these sources and thinking about what did Japanese people know about the broader world, even though this was a period when they weren't traveling as much. Um, and so the fact that there were these interesting tidbits in them that made them like fables or stories meant that they spread more widely than just in a government warehouse somewhere. Um, but that meant that people were still reading the, the progression of a shipwreck part before it got to the strange people they ran into, right? And when I read a lot of these in a row, it, they seem very stereotyped, right? The progress of a wreck, the storm came up, um, the wind was bad for some duration of time, but you know, Usually they say it was a big wind, it came up, um, we struggled, we, we worked really hard to pump out the ship and, and to save the ship, um, but it, it, it got to be so bad that we had to throw over the cargo um, because the ship was unstable and then we had to cut down the mast because there's a huge lever arm that's trying to flip the ship over. Um, and then we were just a drifting hull and there was nothing we could do more than that. Um, we tried our best and either they get in the small rowboat that is, you know, essentially the, the tender for the ship, right? And, and they abandon ship and then they drift off in that boat and land somewhere. Um, or they stay with the ship and drift off in the hull and land somewhere. Um, and at that point, this is where the, the religious responses come in, right? They, they start praying once they've done everything else they can to try to save the ship and get back to shore. Um, and so that's essentially like 
they give up, right? They, they um, pray to um, a whole bunch of different sorts of uh, beings. So some of them are Buddhist prayers um, and some of them are more what we would consider Shinto prayers or ones that are influenced by um, Chinese understandings that Chinese goddess Mazu is, is one of the um, people they, or she used to be a person, she became deified and the Japanese um, think of her as a deity. Um, there's a dragon god under the sea that kind of fits in with broader East Asian conceptions of um, divine spirits and, and creatures that live around the area. So lots of different places, depending on the person that they might think, hey, maybe you can save us. Um, but it's usually at the point where they realize they can't save themselves. And then um, it gets into, you know, where do they land and, and what do they tell about? And so that progress of a shipwreck um, does kind of prove to the government that, you, that this wasn't your fault right? Um, that this was clearly a natural disaster. It was beyond human capabilities to, to survive. It was beyond divine capabilities to um, save the ship, but at least you, whoever did survive, uh, maybe was um, protected by these prayers or, or, or otherwise um, was, was able to get back because of this. Uh, and so over time, you start getting uh, accounts that I think not necessarily um, on purpose reflect this pattern, but but get used to using this pattern, right? And so we have to be a little bit careful about the details of what actually happens in the shipwrecks because these are, these are accounts that are, that are probably influenced by earlier versions of this kind of storytelling. They're also usually accounts that are um, an oral report from the survivor to a scribe who's writing it down for them. There might be some interpretation depending on who's writing it down. And also it's usually a couple of years later when they get back, if not more. And so they're remembering this, but they're not probably remembering the wind came up directly from the South Southwest for this many hours. I mean, some of those details are in these accounts, but I don't necessarily think that they're as trustworthy as they sound with those details um, because it's been a long time since the actual shipwreck by the time this gets written down. Um, and so over the course of the period, one of the things that I think it, it's a little hard to say exactly how they change. Um, I mean, there are dates in them, so you could, you could line them up and see, you know, how are these changing? But one of the things I did find that is a clear change that reflects more and more people being familiar with earlier stories and, and telling their own um, is that there's some, there's a couple of stories that were written in the 19th century, we think, best guess. <laughs> um, they're dated from the 1600s. Right, so there's this, this story about a wreck that supposedly happened in the 1600s, and they talk all about the progression of it, and it turns out that they're actually a Buddhist moral tale using the format of the shipwrecks accounts to tell a story about how you should be a good Buddhist and who you, so in this particular case, it prays much more in a Buddhist sense than it does in some of the other ones where it's a mishmash of different possible, um, anybody who can help me <laughs> kinds of, of prayers. And so definitely there was an influence on these being popular enough that it reshaped like, oh, enough people have recognized this, that we can use this story to tell our version that's a, more of a, a teaching tool for a Buddhist sect than it is intended to be an actual record of a shipwreck. And I think that's just really fascinating. Thank you very much. Uh, might I just now ask one final question before we wrap up today's proceedings? Uh, as you pointed out, these accounts sort of develop a stereotypical narrative and they sort of speak back to older accounts. In the light of this, would you 
would you briefly reflect on how 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 much of a potential these accounts have as sort of a different set of archives to understand the impact of environmental catastrophes at sea i mean there are accounts of ships logs and readings that are often used to understand the impact of a cyclone or a typhoon but when i read your research i felt this of course along with i mean reading these accounts against the grain and with uh, remembering how they were created or why they were created, they could be a potential set of a different archives for researching the impact of environmental catastrophes. What is your take on that? Yeah, actually, I think that they're really valuable in, um, and, and initially when I was first reading them, that's what I was expecting, right? That these would be, these would tell me about specific like bad typhoons or, or you know something that came in that was a unusual bad weather kind of climate catastrophe. And what I found in reading them is actually even more interesting in that it tells us, I think more about the general average bad weather, right? That most ships were not going out in typhoons um, because they, if they saw that kind of bad weather coming, they would run into shore, right? Obviously, if they're too far offshore and a typhoon is coming, you can't outrun it. But they were they were usually running um, within sight of the coast. They were navigating by coastal landmarks. And so I think the kind of really looming dark clouds that are on the edge of an incoming typhoon would be enough for people to say, uh oh, <laughs> time to go inshore. Um, and so usually they weren't getting caught in typhoons. They were getting caught in storms that were, um, you know, not at that level of hurricane or typhoon, but still pretty bad. And so they actually are a really good record of less notable climate disasters, right? The kinds of things that are more regular and therefore aren't necessarily gonna be somebody on shore saying, wow, there was this amazing windstorm that came in and flooded everything that you could then parse back into being a typhoon, um, but instead are actually telling a lot more about regular patterns of climate over time. So things like the fact that winter storms are, are worse, so they often don't sail during the winter, um, and the ships that try to push the season a little too far into winter or start, start a little bit too early in the spring get caught in really bad storms, um, and that shows you the, the pattern, the monsoon pattern that in the wintertime brings weather from across Asia. So there's, there's sort of regular pattern of fronts coming through and you can expect about a week between these uh, really strong west winds that are storms or just really strong west winds, and, you know, from the purposes of being on a ship, it's a storm, right? And so they would know like, oh, you've got to wait, you know, five to seven days when this start, sort of thing starts coming and they get used to those climate patterns of these fronts that come through from Siberia. And then in the summertime, similarly, um, the, the winds tend to be coming up from the southeast instead, but there, there's patterns of strong winds that come through and it's actually telling us about the, the progression of weather systems changing and, and that what they generally see for the wrecks that happen in the sort of spring through fall, kind of think of as the summer season as, as opposed to the winter season, um, is that the times when people get in trouble is when the wind shifts around to the west or some west-ish directions and it might be southwest or something like that um, and so you see you know 
there are ways in which prevailing winds are important for traveling, but also that there are regular shifts in those prevailing winds that tell you something about the climate um, that they're dealing with and why it is that it's so dangerous to try to sail along these shores. Because in both cases, in the winter storms, usually they hit in the Japan Sea worse because um, once you've hit the Japan Alps, it helps to mitigate some of that weather. So by the time it gets to the other coast, it's, it's not as bad. Um, whereas in the other season, you're getting the winds fetching all the way across the Pacific. So the waves can be pretty bad <laughs> by the time they hit Japan. Uh, and so that's why when the wind shifts, you get wind against prevailing sea swell or, or things like that. And so I think they're really interesting records for maybe piecing out some of this kind of climactic pattern, um, which might also include some typhoons or other disasters. I mean, I have a, I have seen a picture um, from a newspaper, uh, Western newspaper printed in uh, Nagasaki where a typhoon came through and wrecked all of the ships that were anchored in the harbor. So definitely there are cases like that, but they weren't sailing at the time, right? They were all anchored. They all knew better than to be offshore in that kind of weather. Um, and so that was a really fascinating discovery as I started reading into these records that, that it might tell us something about sort of baseline climate um, when I was expecting it to tell us about or like, extraordinary climate uh, and, and disasters uh, end up being part of the ordinary climate in ways that um, is really interesting. Thank you very much, Professor Arch, for a wonderful discussion. I learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners will also do so when they listen to your podcast. That's all we have got for today. Thanks also to my colleague, Renny Mandeville, who works behind the scenes and helps produce this amazing podcast. Keep listening to the Indian Ocean World podcasts. We do have an exciting line of speakers uh, over this summer. Until then, goodbye, take care. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean World.